what is the human impact of legal wrongdoing? That question is at the heart of my guest today's first book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, out today. It was fascinating and, if I'm honest, also a bit terrifying to talk to David S. Rudolph about what happens to people who are victims of abuses of power. Pay special attention to what he says you, me, and all of us can do to help make this problem less and less going forward. When I read books, I hope to learn things I never knew about before, even if they're difficult to stomach, like this conversation. Take a listen. On the show today, we have one of the preeminent trial lawyers in the United States, defense attorney and civil rights lawyer, David S. Rudolph, who you might recognize from The Staircase on Netflix. He also co-hosts the criminal justice podcast, Abuse of Power. I always love having fellow podcasters on the show, David. And in his first book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, which is out January 25th, we go behind the scenes to see how power is abused within America's criminal justice system. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate your having me. Having me. Yeah, so, so let's start right out of the gate with a heavy hitter for you. In the past 30 years alone, more than 2,800 innocent American prisoners, their combined sentences surpassing 25,000 years, have been exonerated and freed after being condemned for crimes they did not commit. Terrifyingly, this number represents only a fraction of the actual number of persons wrongfully accused and convicted over the same period. David, how did this happen? How did we get here? Well, it, it, it happened over a long period of time, uh, and it goes back uh, a long period of time. Uh, and I think, you know, the way we got here was that um, we all suffer from something called confirmation bias. Mm. Um, uh, all of us uh, sort of come to some theories uh, about something, and then we focus in on the facts that support our theory, and we sort of ignore or downplay the facts that uh, don't support our theory. Uh, and I think that's what happens very often uh, in these cases. Uh, I don't think police are uh, trying to frame innocent people. I think they develop a theory uh, based on their instinct. Uh, they're a little bit arrogant about that. They think they know, uh, based on their experience, what happened. Uh, and then they suffer from confirmation bias or tunnel vision. So they, they focus in on, on evidence uh, or facts that they feel confirm their theory, and they sort of ignore the facts uh, that don't confirm their theory. And that's particularly a problem where the evidence against the person is weak. Uh, because that's where the temptation is to really uh, become uh, uh, overtly uh, uh, engaged in misconduct. Not because they think they're framing somebody who's innocent, but because they're convinced that the guilty person may get out if they don't do what they set out to do. 
Well, I found this passage from the book really interesting. You write, it's not that the police set out to frame someone they know to be innocent, although that sometimes happens, if rarely. More often, the police feel the need to create or find the evidence necessary to convict where none exists. So basically, they're, they're just conviction hunting. Will you talk that through with us? Because I think that's really compelling. Yeah, well, it, it, it gets down to this. You know, the police don't like to let the perp uh, get away with it. Uh, and so, and you hear a lot about, you know, technicalities and this and that, you know, letting people off. The truth of the matter is that technicalities don't let very many people off. Lack of evidence is what lets people off. Uh, and so the police, when they're convinced someone is guilty, uh, honestly convinced for whatever reason, uh, they don't want that person skating. They don't want that person escaping the consequences. And so there's a very great uh, uh, desire on their part to find evidence. And if they can't find it, then sometimes they create it. And it's called noble cause corruption. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what it really is, is the ends justify the means. You know, we're going to get this guy convicted because he did it. And whatever we need to do is okay because the end is just. You know, before we go any further, tell us a little bit about you and your background. How did you get into this work? How did how did this work become compelling to you? Well, you know, I started out out of law school as a public defender in the South Bronx, uh, and so I saw sort of the uh, the worst of the worst of the criminal justice system, uh, and uh, and then I went to teach for a while. Uh, at the University of North Carolina and ended up staying here in North Carolina and going into private practice. And so for really for three or four decades, uh, uh, my practice was almost exclusively limited to defending people who were charged with crimes. Uh, and then interestingly enough, after the staircase trial, which was in 2003, uh, I took a little bit of a break uh, and I reassessed and I decided that what I really wanted to do was to uh, help people who had been wrongfully convicted, because I believe Michael had been wrongfully convicted. Uh, and so over the next decade or two now, two decades, I guess, uh, I've sort of developed that niche in my practice. Uh, and I've represented a number of uh, people who have been exonerated after being wrongfully convicted. Uh, and, and I just have found it to be eye-opening. And indeed, it really provides a lot of the grist for the, for the book. Yeah, and you mentioned the Michael Peterson trial, which uh, was made famous in Netflix is The Staircase. For those listeners that haven't watched it yet or haven't heard of the Michael Peterson case, will you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, Michael was a fairly well-known author, um, successful author. Uh, he had run for mayor of Durham, North Carolina. He'd lost. Uh, and his wife uh, was found by him late at night at the foot of some stairs at their home, uh, bleeding profusely from the head, uh, and she had bled to death. Uh, and so the question was, uh, was this an accident? or had somebody murdered her? And if somebody murdered her, the obvious person was Michael because he was the only person in the house. And so that became the, the defining issue in that case. Uh, and uh, it went on for two years as, as part of a trial 
uh, and pretrial preparation. And then he was convicted. Uh, and I'm not going to do any more spoiling uh, because people go watch it on Netflix. People need to go watch it. And the book has some new details about the case as well, which I appreciated. So it's a great series on Netflix. So, uh, you know, the book sheds light on misconduct that exists at all levels of law enforcement and the tragic consequences that follow in its wake. What, David, what is the human impact of legal wrongdoing? Well, that's really the point of the book. Uh, You know, this is not a book about what a great lawyer I am, you know, far from it. Uh, It's a book about what happens to the people who are the victims of this abuse of power? Because the only way we're going to change things is if people uh, like your listeners understand the effect that it can have on an innocent person to be even just accused, let alone convicted. Right. You know, we, we sort of lose sight of the fact that when somebody is accused of a crime, arrested or indicted, their life is turned upside down, even if they're ultimately acquitted. So yep. wrongful prosecutions are a whole nother subcategory uh, of cases that we really need to look at. Uh, and so my goal was to write about these stories in the hopes that people could really understand the human toll that uh, the abuse of power can take. Uh, and, and that's really what the goal of the book was. You taught me so many ways that this is done, like coercing innocent defendants into giving false confessions or incentivizing witnesses like jailhouse snitches to give false testimony against an accused. And you're right, with with our pervasive cancel culture, even an accusation, let alone a conviction, can ruin someone's life, basically. Well, and, and, it, and it existed way before, uh, you know, so-called cancel cu- culture. I mean, th- this is... Anybody who's ever been accused uh, of any crime, especially a serious crime, uh, they can tell you that their lives were totally consumed after that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what can you do on a day-to-day basis if all of a sudden you're facing a a massive fraud charge in federal court or you're facing an assault charge? Uh, You know, it it just dominates your life. Uh, And and in the case of some people, for example, uh, Ed Friedland, it totally decimated his his medical practice. Yep. Uh, so, uh, you know, this doesn't just happen to poor people. Uh, this happens to anybody uh, who happens to get caught up in in the abuses that exist. You also write that the problem extends far beyond law enforcement seeking a conviction. You write, I love quoting authors to authors, you write, you would think that all the actors in the court system would happily work to correct erroneous convictions, but this has not proven to be the case. Prosecutors and judges have shown remarkable hostility to overturn convictions based on new evidence or evidence of misconduct by police or prosecutors, even when the new evidence includes reliable scientific data, such as DNA comparisons that exclude the defendant as a perpetrator in the crime. That is incredibly disturbing. So after reading that, how can we trust our criminal justice system, David? Well, you know, first of all, our criminal justice system, unfortunately, uh, uh, favors finality over justice. So once somebody is convicted, 
the the entire process gets sort of turned inside out. No longer is that person obviously con considered innocent or presumed innocent. And beyond that, there's this great uh, impetus to keep them in prison, you know, to, to finally end this. We have to have some finality. There needs to be an end to the, to the appeals. And, and we hear that a lot. And there's some truth to that. I mean, sure, we, we need finality, but not at the expense of justice, not at the expense of truth. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that that uh, our system needs to recognize that we are all human beings, that we make mistakes. I make mistakes. Prosecutors make mistakes. Police make, mis make mistakes and judges make mistakes. You know, Orlando Hudson. Uh, at the end of, of the staircase, admits essentially uh, that he made some mistakes in that case, which cost Michael Peterson eight years of his life. Uh, so, you know, we all need to be humble enough to admit that uh, and, and then to really look at what happened. You know, uh, when, when a medical procedure goes wrong, uh, the hospital convenes a whole group of people, uh, uh, you know, a critical incident review where they all get together. The goal is not to blame somebody. The goal is to understand what went wrong and how we can prevent this from going wrong again. That is never, ever done in the case of a wrongful conviction. I mean, imagine that. You you, I mean, I've got people who, who have done 42 years. Wow. And there is no examination about about what happened or why it happened. I mean, there's not even an apology. And how we can prevent this from ever happening again. Right, right. Because if you don't learn from it, how are you going to stop it? Right, uh, right. So, I mean, it's horrible enough that someone could lose that much of their life. But the fact that there's really nothing done to make sure it never happens again. And it's just, oh, oop, it's kind of oops. I mean, it's not just an oops. It's a, oh, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, the prosecutors or the judges say, well, you see, the, the system worked. We, he, he was eventually exonerated. So the <laughs> system worked. That's insane. Come well, on. It, we it, can do it, better it than that. Insane. It is insane. It, it's just that the system didn't do as much damage as it could have done. Wow. Uh, that the system worked. My gosh. Uh, I'm going to ask you what we can do about this in a second, but I want to, I, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. You point out in the book that this problem is especially problematic in the American South. Why is this? Well, I think, I think historically it's been more problematical in the South because there's been a little bit more vigilanteism in the South over the years, uh, you know, mm -hmm. over history. So, you know, uh, you don't have that history of lynchings and, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, vigilante justice for the most part in the North. You know, that, that's somewhat of a, of a Southern uh, historical artifact. Uh, Unfortunately. And so, well, you know, that's just the reality. Uh, and, yeah. and then, you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the wrongful convictions occur uh, in rural counties uh, where the police don't have a lot of resources. Uh, and and obviously the South is is mostly rural, uh, so that's a problem. Um, but to be fair, these happen all over the country. You know, I, the stories that are in the book are based in the South because that's where I am, uh, and so those are the stories that I know best. 
but I have heard similar stories from all over the country, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, uh, you know, Los Angeles. It doesn't, Chicago is, is just notorious for this. Yeah. So it, it, it's, not, it's not a Southern thing. Uh, you know, and I, I don't mean to create that impression at all in the book because it just so happens that that's my, you know, field of experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it exists all over. You know, beyond the injustice to the wrongfully accused and later convicted, you point out correctly in the book that when this abuse of power happens, the too often overlooked consequence is that the innocent go to prison and the guilty go free. And you write a greater perversion of justice is hard to imagine. I mean, I completely agree with you. So after reading your book, David, what what can be done and how do, how do we fix this? I mean, I know that's the billion dollar question, but where do we go from here? Because from where I sit, it's just in, it's just broken. Well, I, I think it is broken. Uh, and I think there's, you know, there's several places we can go. Uh, you know, one thing we can do is make sure that the police officers who we're hiring uh, are uh, are mentally fit uh, and stable. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people being hired as police officers now who served in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Uh, some of them may suffer from PTSD. Uh, you know, we need to be careful and screen the people who we're hiring as police officers to make sure that that they are the kind of people that we want to entrust lives to. Uh, second of all, uh, those people need to be properly trained and not just trained in how to shoot somebody or how to disarm somebody, but be trained in things such as confirmation bias uh, and tunnel vision, particularly detectives, so that when they come upon a scene of a crime, uh, they don't just trust their instinct. They do what doctors do, which is sort of... Uh, you know, a differential diagnosis. You know, the doctor goes through all the possible diagnoses that uh, would apply and rules them out one by one until he comes to what his final diagnosis is. It's not perfect. Sometimes they get it wrong, but at least they've gone through the process. Detectives don't ever have to do that. Uh, and and I, I don't think most people, let alone detectives, really understand confirmation bias that affects all of us. It's not, it's not a scarlet letter. It affects all of us. And then I think, you know, another piece of this is that we need to be paying attention to who we elect at the local level, mm. because it's sheriffs and prosecutors who set the tone. Uh, and those are generally elected locally. And unfortunately, people don't really pay attention to the down ballot offices. Yeah. You know, I People don't know who this sheriff is or who this contender is or who this prosecutor is. So I think we all need to pay more attention uh, to our local officials. Who's being elected to the city council if the city council hires a police chief? Who's being uh, elected sheriff? And what are they running on? And what are their policies? And what do they believe in? Who's being elected district attorney? And what are their policies? And, and what do they believe in? So I, I think, you know, that's a start. It's not, it's not the end, uh, but at least it would be a start. Well, let me ask you this. Since your career began, has it gotten better at all since you began your career, worse, stayed the same? 
I honestly think it's gotten worse. Uh, I, I really do. Gosh, that's um, disheartening. I, and why is that, you, you think? Well, you know, I, maybe, maybe I'm suffering from confirmation bias. And, you know, it's because I've become more and more uh, sensitized uh, to these sorts of things than I was at the very beginning of my career. Um, but I, I think, again, there's been a sort of militarization of the police. Um, you know, there's just so many police officers who are ex-military now compared to in the past. Uh, and I think, um, I think we just have been paying insufficient attention to the presumption of innocence. I think uh, that that presumption, for some reason or other, has really been hollowed out over the over the past 40 or 50 years. Uh, and and I don't I don't know that it really carries the weight that it used to. Um, but it, that's how it seems to me. I, you know, I could be wrong about that. Uh, and, and maybe it's always been this way. Uh, I certainly don't think it's it's any better than it used to be. That's really disheartening because you'd hope. You'd hope that things would get better. I pray that they do. Well, here's here's where's here here's where there's hope. Okay. There's a number of progressive prosecutors who have been elected, who have uh, agendas such as conviction integrity units that that search out and look at cases that may have gone wrong, uh, who uh, don't believe that everybody who's accused of a misdemeanor needs to have a bail set that keeps them in prison or jail. Uh, and so we have a number of those people all over the country, really, uh, that we never had, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is that those people are running into incredible headwinds from police uh, and from other prosecutors. Uh, and and they're under attack. Uh, and so we'll have to just wait and see how that shakes out. From where I sit as an outsider, why would they be under attack? That just see, I, I wanted to say, why can't we have widespread adoption of that? Why, why is that so controversial? You'd think everybody would be in it together to convict the right person. Well, uh, their view is, uh, and you know, look, uh, they all, everybody has their own agenda here. So, and I have mine. So you take what I say with a grain of salt, but I think police officers feel like they're being quote handcuffed uh, by these progressive prosecutors who aren't going after the bad guys strongly enough, who, you know, are, are sort of, uh, you know, snowflakes uh, to use the, uh, the current uh, pejorative uh, you know, for liberal-minded uh, folks, uh, and uh, and so they run into political problems, and and part of that is, you know, what what is the population looking for? Is the population looking for law and order, and throw away the key? And uh, yeah, it's worth to convict one innocent person to get ten guilty people convicted. Or do they believe in the fundamental principle that uh, it's better to let one guilty person uh, go, uh, let one, uh, uh, it's better, let me state this correctly, Hope, hopefully you can edit this. I'm with you. Uh, you know, that, it, that it's better uh, to let one guilty person go free uh, than to convict an innocent person. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think that attitude just, just doesn't really exist among certain 
people in the criminal justice system? There's just so much here. This book is, is a must read. My final question for you is what do you hope readers of American Injustice get out of the book? You know, my goal for this book is for folks like your listeners to read the book and think about what's going on and the impact that these abuses have on everyday people, because it's not just the poor or the brown or the black that suffer these things. It's, it's everyday people. And so my hope is to educate people about the criminal justice system. Uh, it's the same hope I had when I made, uh, you know, when I allowed them to film uh, Peterson's trial, is to educate. And so that's my goal now is to educate people so that when they do start voting for sheriffs or DAs, they're thinking about these things. You know, when they go and sit on a jury, uh, they're thinking about things like junk science and not just accepting the word of a quote expert because he's been qualified as a quote expert. So that's my goal. Uh, and, and hopefully, you know, by telling the stories of real people, uh, people will get that message. Thank you for being here today and for this important book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System is out January 25th. I appreciate you writing about a topic that doesn't affect us until it does affect us. And we, it could just as easily be us on uh, the other side of the bench. And um, I thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to, to talk with folks. Thank you so much for coming on the show, David. I will be thinking about this conversation for a very long time. By the way, this is our 50th episode today, so that is very exciting. More to come. Later this week, we'll have on the show Nicole Lappin to talk personal finance, a topic that we can all benefit from learning a little more about. Until then, have a great week. Mm -hmm.